You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. And welcome to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. And who do we have a good one planned for you? I'm your host, Richard Franzi, and this is podcast episode number 1,250, and this is interview number 1,563. We've been on the air since March of 2009, and we're the longest-running business podcast in Orange County, California. Deal or no deal? The Art of Business in an Aging Expansion is the headline title for the 2020 Economic Forecast. Dr. Mira Farka, who's the co-director at the Wood Center for Economic Analysis and Forecasting, is on our show to provide context into what we can expect for the U.S. and the Orange County economies in 2020. If you'd like to learn more about our radio show and podcast, or maybe the CEO peer groups that I chair, visit my company's website, which is criticalmass4business.com. Dr. Farka, it is a pleasure to welcome you back to our program. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure. All right. Well, let's get right into it. You know, unlike you, you, you talk about in the report, and you and Dr. And, and Neil Peary talked about it at the at the luncheon last week. That unlike previous recessions, the last three recessions were caused by what you call financial imbalances. I wonder if you could explain what that term means, financial imbalances, and what can we learn from the fact that these have been the reason why we've run into a recession, not just the last one, but the previous three. Right. So we thought it was an appropriate time to kind of look back historically at what causes a recession, since everybody's worried about a recession now that this expansion has entered its tenth, its 11th year. It has 10th birthday already. So we look back historically and we found there are like four main causes. And one of them is like fiscal tightening. This happens usually after unwinding of major wars. This is not the case now. Another one is oil shocks of the type we saw in the mid and late uh, 70s. Obviously, that's not an issue today when U.S. economy is less dependent on uh, oil. Uh, The other cause is overheating, Fed tightening, which is, again, not the case today when things are sort of cooling down. And finally, there's financial imbalances, which you so astutely mentioned that that's actually the cause of the last three recessions. That's the one in 91. Then we had, when we had the savings and loans boom and bust, and then um, even though that started kind of in the late 80s, kind of spilled into the early 90s, and that caused their recession. And, of course, we had uh, the tech boom and bust of the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, and that caused the 2001 recession. And finally, we had sort of a housing boom and bust of the, uh, that, that basically precipitated the Great Recession. So the financial imbalances in general are exactly things where pockets of the economy kind of go out of whack. They grow out of proportion. You have overextending of debt levels and so on. Uh, these are always worrisome. And it's been the cause of the last three recessions, and uh, we're always on the lookout for it to happen again and potentially this time around. Now, the good news, as we kind of mentioned, is that thankfully, I mean, this time around, consumers and banks are in a much stronger place. They haven't, in fact, they've deleveraged, they've sort of shed debt. They've gone from the household debt has gone from like 100 percent of GDP, 98 percent. It's now down to 74 percent. So back to the levels where we were in the in kind of like the mid to late 90s. Same goes for banking sector. So we don't see this kind of imbalances building, at least not on the consumer or the banking side, not this time around. 
the problem so so the problem however is that other sectors uh seem to be a little bit out of whack for example if you look at corporate debt that has gone up i mean it's gone up by six trillion dollars since the start of the recovery corporate debt now is 15 trillion dollars total uh, that's like almost three quarters of the gdp so it's pretty high and more concerning is sort of like the uh the composition of that debt we see a lot of a huge increase in leveraged loans uh, they're about 1.4 trillion now we have a huge increase on uh, other, I mean, or uh, leveraged loans, and then the other one is the uh, uh, sort of junk bonds. That's another 1.2 trillion dollars there. So the problem is, if you add them up, that's about 2.6 trillion dollars. So if things go south, this part of the, the the health of the business sector will be exposed, which worries us. And you know, I mean, for comparison, the size of the more the subprime mortgage back in two thousand in in two thousand and six and seven. I mean, the subprime mortgages was about $2.6 trillion. So they're comparable in size. Now, of course, the economy is a third bigger now than back then. But again, this gives us kind of a cause to to sort of worry and pause a little bit. Interesting. Uh, I I appreciate you taking us through the other things that created or precipitated the previous recessions. I'm old enough to remember things like uh, oil shocks to the... uh, to the economy and what that did, and we've made great strides to, de- to kind of deleverage our 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 dependence on foreign oil. So you know we have made strides, but the message is there are still risks to the economy, and and some of them around credit and credit tightening, etc. So thank you. Uh, you know your report talks about the challenges that U.S. manufacturers have been facing for some time, and in fact, you, you mentioned in the report that the ISM uh, manufacturing index kind of had a significant de- decline in the last quarter. Can, can you share for those um, out in the audience kind of what are the factors that are impacting negatively U.S. manufacturers, Mara? Right. So, I mean, the ISM manufacturing index actually has had kind of a bad run the last three months. It's the lowest it's ever been since 2009 when we were still in, in, in a recession. We were getting out at the time. Uh, so this had a lot of people worried, and, and it is a worrisome sign. And, and uh, the causes are kind of simple to understand and pretty obvious. Manufacturing sector is the most exposed to global trades, global conflicts as well. Of course, the trade volumes have kind of collapsed over the last, uh, I want to say, six months to a year almost. Started to decline at the end of last year and continued this year. So once trade volumes sort of collapse, they're down by about 4% year-over-year right now, uh, that kind of drags down manufacturing exports uh, as well. Uh, it's also true that, uh, you know, and, and, and it has kind of bigger, larger effects when it comes to corporate profits. I mean, 40% of profits for S&P 500 companies are kind of earned abroad. So when it, when it starts uh, impacting profits, it starts impacting business confidence, it also impacts business investments. So all of these, what I call production side, are sort of a chain link. But the biggest concern, obviously, is the slowing global economy. So slowing global economy, which is not coincidentally, it's certainly linked to the global trade wars that have been going on between the U.S. and China. So uh, it's a global component, why the industrial production has been hurting uh, and why we see such weak performance. But uh, we expect it to continue unless, I mean, the trade war sort of uh, de-escalates, which it has recently. 
So we do think that there will be a, a bit of a positive reversal on this uh, sector as well. The only sort of silver lining about manufacturers is that the, the manufacturing side uh, of the economy has really shrunk to very little. I mean, it's only it makes up about 11% of total output, makes up about 9% of employment. So that's why you haven't felt it in the core, in the labor market, in the consumers, in the other side, basically. The consumer side of the economy is still going strong. Uh, but there's a reason it's precisely because manufacturing is much smaller now than it was 50 years ago. Uh, otherwise, we would be already in a recession uh, if things were different. So, so uh, kind of a follow-up, if I could, and I'm speaking with Dr. Mira Farka, a returning guest, kind of an annual guest, if not semi-annual here on Critical Mass Radio Show and, and podcast. Um, of the 9% that the manufacturing makes up of the uh, workforce, it, how much is that, in your sense, is concentrated around automotive and the automotive industry here in the U.S.? Because that's a large part of the that's manufacturing large, sector, right. right? Right. I mean, it's about a rough estimate. It's about half of it. So obviously, when and wow. and and that's the problem because that's actually very largely exposed to global trade flow, uh, global outlook, and and global growth prospects. So that's one. Of, that's the that's the biggest concern. That's why you see manufacturing having. I'm going through a tough time. I mean, the tough time started about a year and a half ago when uh, when the administration decided to sort of go all out on a trade war, especially with China. Now, we can talk about the the effects of that, or we can talk about the merits of that, but certainly that's what's happening, that's what's impacting um, the manufacturing sector. Another important part of our economy is the farming slash agriculture, and one of the things that I uh, heard during the luncheon that I wanted to have you maybe give me more context for, and then also our audience is, I found it concerning that you and Dr. Puri highlighted the challenges facing our U.S. farmers, and what I heard you say pertains to how farmers are borrowing against their real estate in order to maintain their businesses because the operations of the business isn't funding a profit. They have to pull into their asset base to kind of stay afloat. Um, first of all, did I accurately state that? And secondly, what concerns or or observations are you are you making about our you know agricultural sector and industry here in the U.S.? So I mean, agriculture itself has shrunk to about one one and a half percent of U.S. output, but obviously uh, farming is an important, especially um, in parts of California and of course uh, the mid uh, the Midwest certainly is a, an important part of their economy. And uh, nobody talks about it that much because because it's such a small percentage of the overall economy, but certainly is important. Um, I mean, one thing that we did look in our report is that I mean, farm debt has actually risen quite a lot across the U.S. In fact, it's back now to where it was in the mid '80s, prior to their uh, uh, to the huge losses they experienced. Uh, agricultural sec- sector went into a deep recession back uh, about 30, 35 years ago. But uh, the, the, the debt levels have, have risen. Now, the good news is that the farm land is still very valuable. So they've been able to actually get a lot of debt and sort of collateralize it with their, uh, with their farm. But farm income has actually suffered. They reached a peak in 2013, but they've actually, they're almost half now where they were back in 2013. And the trade war with China certainly hasn't helped. China, remember, is one of the biggest uh, importers of our soybean and pork product. So obviously that hasn't helped. That's what actually has uh, brought down quite a bit of their profits. Now, on the plus side, the 
the administration, the Trump administration has, has kind of done quite a concerted effort to make up to the uh, farmers the losses that they experienced through the trade because of the trade war with China. So they've given first $12 billion, and that got increased to about $16 billion. Uh, but farmers really want to uh, want to actually, I mean, want to sell the product, want to sell the output. So one of the silver lining, one of the positive news that came out of the latest negotiation in trade discussions with U.S. and China is precisely that China, I mean, the U.S. is pushing China to commit to purchasing about $50 billion in agricultural goods, and vast majority is soybeans and pork, but others as well. So farmers are hoping that this will actually come to fruition. Uh, the problem is that, you know, obviously uh, debt ratios are very are very high right now. I mean, net far if you look at the loan volume over net farm income, that has reached about 16-year high. So the finances are a bit, talking about areas of concern of imbalance, this is one of them as well, where the farmers are actually uh, borrowing a lot of credit against their property to be able to actually stay afloat. Again, the hope is that any deal that they strike will come to fruition, and this would get it going again. But it's still a big if. And it really impacts the smaller, you know, not the corporate agricultural right. farmers. It, it impacts the small business owners and the middle market people that are working land. And so I wanted to bring that out because while it feels like, you know, we're, we're in a the longest recovery, there are segments of our, of our population and of our GDP that are struggling because you would agree as as a farmer you can't continue to borrow against your land forever i mean eventually you're going to hit a ceiling in some way and just servicing that debt at some point too becomes problematic well, I, mean, I, said, I think the reason why we haven't seen a collapse in farming prices uh, farm property prices is precisely because the administration tried to make it up with an aid package right. which has helped and then the banks have been more more willing to loan uh to farm to to farmers uh as I mentioned, the farm debt has risen to about $450 billion. That's the largest we've ever seen historically. Uh, that has helped, but again, that's a, that's a short-term patching of a problem and not a long-term solution. Right. So talking about a long-term challenge that we face, let's, let's focus on the U.S. federal budget and the annual deficit, which um, you talk about in the coming decade could exceed a trillion dollars per year. What risks do you see that these deficits and then the in intended um, debt present to the U.S. economy kind of in a little longer-term perspective? Right. So in a sense, I mean, no one is worried about – I mean, we all talk about being worried about deficit, but we're not really worried about deficit because, in a sense, right now, the problem is not uh, – It's while it's corrosive, it's not an existential threat right now. Uh, the worry is, and we know, I mean, we can see this sort of a, a sort of a long drum roll coming along for, for decades ahead. I mean, it will become a problem probably in the middle of next decade. Uh, if you think about it, we, we're projecting a fiscal deficit of $1.5 trillion in 2029, uh, and that's double the amount that we have today, for example. So that's, that's very worrisome. And part of the reason why it's a problem is because uh, – just think about it in terms of the amount of money that would go just to service that type of debt. For comparison reasons, if you think about well, how much we're paying on interest on, on the debt, how much we paid this fiscal year, it was almost $400 billion, which is not that bad if you think about it in the $20 trillion economy. But keep in mind that interest rates are low. And, you know, this debt was roughly at about 2.8% interest or so, if you count all the different maturities. Now, if the debt grows and interest rate grows, things are going to get much worse. You're going to have to toil that much harder just to pay the debt. 
uh, our own projections. We ran some quick projections here, but by 2026, just the interest payment on the debt alone, uh, if interest rates stay at current rates, which is very low, will be $762 billion. That's, that's the entire military budget of last year, basically. If interest rates happen to rise and if interest on the debt goes around 4%, that will be $935 billion, just the payment on the debt. And if they go to 5%, which is the normal historical where interest rates have been historically, that's $1.2 trillion. So we're talking about hefty numbers that are going to crowd out anything else that you may want to spend your federal tax dollars at, like education, like even military spending, or even uh, uh, health, uh, you know, health, uh, dealing also with Social Security and entitlement. So certainly this is a big issue. And I'm only talking about interest payment on the debt. Crowds out any sort of other government investment that you can, uh, investment by the government you can think of. So certainly this will be not only corrosive on growth, but a huge, a huge burden that will hold us back probably five to ten years from now. Yeah, and that's really not that far away, is it? So no. uh, I, I, I'm surprised more people aren't talking about debt and deficit, but, you know, it is what well, it I is. I think people are aware. They're just because it's not, as I mentioned, it's not an existential threat at the moment. Right. But it certainly will be. It is corrosive, and will be corrosive, and continue, and and and, and eventually become a bigger threat that we'll have to deal with. Um, I just don't, I think, as usual, it's a very difficult uh, political pill to swallow to having to deal with the budget deficits. We're talking with Dr. Mira Farka, and we're talking about the 2020 economic forecast. You noted in the forecast that general generally dour mood has seemed to set in across U.S. business leaders. Do you see a correlation between that mood sentiment and the sharp slowdown in business investment that has happened in 2019? Absolutely. I mean, that's the, uh, the number one reason, especially if you think about the dour, the dour mood is more pronounced for large corporations and small uh, business owners. Small business sentiment has sort of wobbled a bit, especially as a third quarter. Uh, but large corporations are downright pessimistic. I mean, if you look, there was a Duke CFO survey where they, they actually do survey a large sample of, CF, of, of uh, large corporations, large CFOs, and about 67% expect a recession to be happening by the third quarter of next year. Fourth quarter of next year, that's basically when, when, during election season. Uh, about 82% think it's going to start in the first quarter of 2021. So, obviously, if you look at the numbers, and, uh, uh, and Duke's CFO survey has a very interesting question. He asked them about the capital planning, uh, the, the planning over the next 12 months for their capital spending, and that's basically investment. And a year ago, they said, I mean, they, they projected very healthy rates, 8.4, 8.5% per year growth. Right now, they're down at zero. Hmm. So they're not planning, at least they're saying they're not planning to expand or to grow over the next year. And part of this, I mean, of course, what they cite the most is policy and political uncertainty about the rules of the game, about the trade deals, and so on. So, in the end, your forecast expects growth to slow materially over the forecast horizon, but not leading us into a recession in 2020. Can you, uh, with the time we have left, sort of set up the risks and headwinds you're monitoring and how you came to that guidance? So the reason why we don't think we're uh, we're projecting a a recession over the forecast horizon is precisely because we think that 
sort of political opportunism on both sides of U.S. and China will sort of will win the day. And the same goes for Brexit and all sorts of other geopolitical headwinds that we're, that we're facing. I mean, of course, uh, we have a presidential, we have a like presidential election next year in the U.S. China uh, has a big year in 2021 because they want to, they've set some goals. They wanted to double output and pro capita income uh, from 2010. So they want their economy to be strong. So we do think we're going to see a truce sort of in this political, uh, mostly in the political uh, back and forth between U.S. and China, which we consider to be the biggest risk for the outlook. So that's the number one risk. Uh, but again, we, we believe that opportunistic sort of political uh, survival, uh, best, best case scenario will sort of win the day. Uh, the second risk we see, sort of a headwind that we see, is also a policy response from the Fed. I mean, it's very easy to make mistakes. I mean, when the economy is in a vulnerable state, as we are now, we're in a late stage of the business cycle, where, you know, this expansion is now the longest in history, in post-war history. And obviously, you're more vulnerable to all sorts of shock. I mean, we saw that the Fed sort of wobbled a little bit their response last year at the end of the last, uh, at the fourth quarter of 2018. And we think things, uh, I mean, the likelihood of making a mistake is very high even now. We think they're getting the right tone and the right posture right now. And they're doing the right thing. They lowered interest rates three times so far, and they signaled they're going to be pausing for a while. But again, when, when, when you're older, like this expansion is, you're very vulnerable to all sorts of shocks. So these two are the biggest risks that we foresee, and they're both worryingly policy response and even more concerning political whims and political processes, which are kind of hard to guess. But again, in our sort of baseline scenario, we're assuming better outcomes will prevail. So, so hopefully it doesn't happen, but should a recession happen sometime in the uh, not too distant or in the distant future, you might have a new cause of it, which would be some type of policy response or political uh, posturing. Yes. So yes, I'm thinking. Yeah, it's very possible uh, that a, this time we will have a very new cause, which will be sort of political mistakes and policy mistakes uh, that will push us into a recession. Okay. We're hoping that's not going to be the case, and again, that's not our baseline. Okay, but certainly that's the concern. So, if someone would like to get this report, and I'll tell you, it's a page turner, ladies and gentlemen. It is an interesting read, chock full of information, but in a story with a premise. And if you're a, a fan of the show. Seinfeld, you'll, you'll really enjoy it because the references that are in there. How do they get a copy of the report, Dr. Farka? So it's very easy to get a copy. You can just simply Google the Wood Center for Economic Analysis and Forecasting and we show up. Or you can go to business.fullerton.edu slash center slash economic analysis and forecasting. I know it's a mouthful, so I'd much <laughs> rather tell people to Google the, the name of the center and it's easy to get the report. And for all the Seinfeld fans, serenity now. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Forka, thank you again. I thoroughly enjoyed both reading it, having you on the show, and attending the Economic Forecast Luncheon that was last week. Thank you for being a friend of the program. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. I'd like to uh, thank our engineer for today, Paul Roberts, our producers without whom we could not do this show, Joan Park, Crystal Nunley, and our newest producer who's here in the studio, Vanessa Holland. If you'd like to connect with me, I'd ask that you start on LinkedIn. I'm Richard Franzi, F-R-A-N-Z-I. Until the next show, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show. 
focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi.